Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to The World in 10, your daily update on the biggest stories from around the world, as seen through the eyes of the Times of London. I'm Laura Cook. And I'm Rebecca Myers. Today, we'll be hearing from our reporter on the ground in Paris, as protests against Macron's pension policy continue to rage, and discussing Gwyneth Paltrow's extraordinary court testimony. first to France, where we are seeing amazing scenes of smoke, flares, protesters in masks, police in riot gear. The streets of Paris are strewn with rubbish on fire. There's graffiti on the walls. Refuse collectors have been on strike for more than two weeks. You can imagine the state of the streets right now. And the sounds there of City Hall in the southwestern French city of Bordeaux being set ablaze on Thursday. So it might come as no surprise that there will be no King Charles III. He was supposed to begin his visit to Paris tomorrow, but now won't go after the French called it off because of those safety concerns. And if you listened to the podcast last weekend, you might recall that we covered the protests then as well the first days of the protest. And it started off about an increase to the pension age from 62 to 64, but in the past week it has significantly escalated. And there is a great quote in the Times today from Hervé Pietre, a union representative, who says, this has gone beyond a demonstration. This is an expression of general anger. Perhaps also one of the most surprising things about the footage and the photos that we've been seeing from France of these protests is the number of young people who are involved. We've spoken to Peter Conradi, the Sunday Times Europe editor, who explains what life is looking like in Paris this weekend. It's been strangely quiet in Paris this Saturday after the drama of the past few days. So where's everybody gone? Especially the thugs known as the Black Bloc, who have a habit of latching onto most demonstrations and then smashing things up for the sheer hell of it. A number of the troublemakers seem to have headed down to a place called Saint-Soline in western France, to join protests by ecologists against plans to build a massive water reservoir. They'll all no doubt be back in Paris after their weekend in the countryside. Another national one-day general strike is planned for this Tuesday. It was its announcement by the unions last Thursday evening that prompted President Macron to pick up the phone to Buckingham Palace the next morning and call off the King's planned trip to France. Yes, so interesting to hear from Peter there. And I think it speaks to that idea that we've been hearing about, that this is so ingrained in French life, this pension age. And there's a brilliant quote in his piece where a 34-year-old says to him, there's a fundamental social contract that's been broken. Basically, we agreed after the Second World War that people have to enjoy their life after they've finished working. And that's really at the heart of these protests. Now, if you want to enjoy life, you might think about going skiing. But what was a lovely holiday has turned into a pretty big headache for Hollywood actress Gwyneth Paltrow. She had a collision on the slopes with 76-year-old Terry Sanderson in 2016. 
Now, Mr. Sanderson is suing the actress for $300,000. He says the crash left him with life-changing injuries. Ms. Paltrow has countersued, seeking $1 in symbolic damages, as well as reimbursement of legal fees. She says she wasn't at fault and the crash left her feeling hurt and violated. Well, she's taken to the stand to give evidence and here's how she described her view of the incident. I was skiing and two skis came between my skis, forcing my legs apart and then there was a body pressing against me and there was a very strange grunting noise. So my brain was trying to make sense of what was happening. I thought, am I, is this a practical joke? Is someone like doing something perverted? This is really, really strange. Now it's important to say that Miss Paltrow isn't accusing Mr. Sanderson of sexual assault. She's just saying that that went through her mind at the time. And during her evidence, she went on to say that she does feel for him. So what happens next? Well, Will Pavia is the New York correspondent for The Times and explains what we can expect. Paltrow is, is now, and, and her lawyers are now preparing to call their own witnesses. Uh, Sanderson is going to give evidence for his side of things on Monday, but then Paltrow um, is, and, and her lawyers are going to call their own defence witnesses. They're going to start with Paltrow's own children, Moses and Apple. You can also catch Camilla Long, our columnist, take on the trial. That's online now. And she uses an amazing phrase, actually, to describe Gwyneth's very expensive outfit choices as repentance neutrals, which I thought was, um, was a very good take. Quite appropriate. <laughs> yes, indeed. It's a name we've heard a lot recently, Bakhmut. It's a small town in the Donbass region that's been the location of some of the most brutal fighting in Europe since the Second World War. The city has been almost entirely flattened and 90% of the town's pre-war population of 70,000 people have now fled. Ukrainian forces are desperately clinging on despite losing up to 200 soldiers a day there. Now, for Sunday Times reporter Jack Clover, the town has a special resonance. Jack spent time there in 2017 and 2019 before he trained as a journalist working with a local charity to put on plays at the town's theatre. And he's been telling us about the town he remembers and why it's become so important in the war. This was not a kind of horrible backwater. This is a, re a really beautiful, very clean, very proud town with these boulevards of, of li lined with roses that stretch down from the, the, the station towards the river. And quite different scenes there now. Why is this town now so central to this war? On both sides, there is a lot at stake in Bakhmut and it looks like the, the line is very fixed and very still, but it's moving all the time behind the scenes. Whilst the lines on the map don't change, the, the forces on both sides um, are moving around quite furiously, preparing for and anticipating a spring offensive. Uh, Ukrainian soldiers are dying every day, but the Russian soldiers are dying at a far higher rate. And so just by being there, just by holding the lines, uh, the Ukrainians are depleting the Russian forces quite massively in that area. And also they're saving the lives of the civilians that are still staying and remaining in the cities of Kramatorsk and Slavyansk. And if, so if, if Ukraine gave up Bakhmut, 
then those cities would be on the front line, even though there are great kind of uh, defensive positions between Bakhmut and those cities. Uh, I, Ukrainian commanders fear that that is where the the, the forces will be will be um, pushed back to, and that would result in you know hundreds to thousands of civilian deaths because a lot of people don't leave or don't have any option to leave um, cities in those areas. So that's why another reason why they're clinging on. Great to hear from Jack there. And so interesting, I'm sure you agree, Laura, to hear from someone who has actually been to a place that really most of us just know from the headlines and from the news. It's heartbreaking to for that we do know it for those reasons, isn't it? But he brings to life exactly what it was known for before. Um, it's It's a really powerful piece. Absolutely. And I think he's hoping to go back there one day. He's been invited on a sparkling wine tour. So, you know, fingers crossed one day that that will again be possible. Now, literally just a stone's throw from where we are sitting here in London is River Thames. And this weekend it will host the 168th boat race between Oxford and Cambridge universities. You might be forgiven for thinking it's a race in choppy, murky water on a Sunday afternoon that'll probably be quite drizzly in England. So what? But when you consider the tales of some of the men and women taking part, it really is fairly impressive. And in years gone by, we've had Olympians head up the teams. I think the last race last year had nine Olympians in the team. But this year, we've got a neuroscientist, a particle physicist, a filmmaker. And there's a great piece on the website right now speaking to those students who are, who are going to be taking part in the boat race, appreciating what it's described as the more romantic side of the boat race. Now, Rebecca, here's a useless fact for you. What's the tally of wins between Oxford and Cambridge before tomorrow's race, obviously? I have no idea. What is it? Cambridge 85, Oxford 81. There was a dead heat apparently recorded in 1877. There you go for any pub quizzes out there this weekend. That's all for today, but we've got a sneak peek of tomorrow's episode for you. You know, the whole thing is absolutely gargantuan. I mean, some of the, some of the figures, there are going to be 2,000 oak trees in there. There's a 1,000 cubic metres of, of stone. Uh, the people working on the restoration have got to clean, polish, sort of restore 41,000 square metres of stone surfaces, 3,000 square metres of stained glass. There are 2,000 statues and sculptures that have to be repaired. Peter Conradi there describing the restoration of the Notre Dame. More on that tomorrow, some amazing photos that will be on the website. Thank you, though, for joining us today. And don't forget, if you enjoyed the journalism you heard on this podcast, you can take out a digital subscription to The Times of London. 